Please stand as you are able for the reading of today's scripture. Our scripture is taken from Malachi chapter 2, 17 through chapter 3, verse 4. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, all who do evil are good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them? Or by asking, where is the God of justice? See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver, until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness." Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It is so good to be in this warm place of fellowship with each of you and to enjoy the music of this season in particular. Uh, I, I know I, I want to begin for all of us by thanking James Wells and Patsy and Greg and all of our music staff and our youth for the concert uh, last uh, Sunday afternoon and evening. As I mentioned in the e-note, it was so good that they have to do it three times on Sunday, that first Sunday of Advent. And it was just a remarkable experience of worship for which we are all grateful and uh, grateful for next Sunday evening. Our chancel choir will be singing, as James mentioned, and Mr. Emmett Cahill, we thank you for coming our way this day. Uh, we, have been, we have been blessed by your music. He is in town singing, I believe, at the Skirmerhorn, and it's a great joy to welcome you here, sir, and to hear you sing, particularly uh, that particular uh, anthem from Handel. We're grateful to you. Well, this morning, we turn to the last book in the Old Testament, uh, the book of Malachi. Now, I don't want you to find it now because it's in the back of your Bible and you would be a while trying to find it. Uh, and it still has the glue on the tips of the pages and you don't want to mess up your Bible. So don't look for it. Just take my word for it. Uh, Malachi is there. It is the last book in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. It is among the shortest of prophetic books in the Hebrew canon, just four chapters, 55 verses. Uh, some of you no doubt would say amen to a prophet that has that gift of brevity. I do not, but I'm grateful for Malachi. It's interesting to me that the Jews pronounce his name a little differently. They pronounce his name Malachi, Malachi which literally means messenger. Malachi is often referred to by historians as the anonymous prophet, and there's a reason for that. It's because if you read Malachi, there isn't a hint of biographical data. 
in it. There's not a single word of personal information about the prophet himself. Some say Malachi isn't a name at all. In fact, some say it is a function, meaning messenger. It's about the function of being a prophet. And so there are those who believe and who advocate that these are the words of Ezra who lived in that same time frame or even Mordecai. But what does it matter? What matters is that Malachi, like Jeremiah that we studied last week, envisions the coming of God, the coming of the Messiah. And he writes about it five centuries before it ever happens. Not only that, but he also mentions in the reading that when he read the forerunner to the Messiah who the church would believe to be the new Elijah, John the Baptist, and this is what makes Malachi 3 such a fitting text for Advent. The context of Malachi's ministry is what historians call the post-exilic period, which is a fancy way of saying it is after the captivity, after the Babylonian captivity. Seventy years after captivity, a new world power rises in the east, Cyrus the Great of Persia, who historians say was very friendly to conquered people in terms of their former customs and religions. He allowed them to practice their former customs and religions. And so when Cyrus comes to power and defeats Nebuchadnezzar of Babylonia, he gives the edict that these Jewish exiles can go home again. 537 BCE, the first installment of Judeans is released, and they go home with permission from Cyrus to rebuild Jerusalem, to repopulate the holy city, to go back home, and to actually even reconstruct the temple. If you read the book of Nehemiah, you will know the exuberance, the jubilation, the initial mood, but it was not to last. It was not long after Reconstruction that the people realized, sadly, that the holy city would never be the same. It was a shadow of its former self. Politically, they had no government. They had no independence. They were a vassal state of the Persian Empire. And as time passed, they would reestablish their book of worship, the ritual of the temple, and they would even reconstitute the priesthood, the clergy. But the morale of the people was waning. It would never be the same, they said. In fact, Malachi points the finger at the clergy during that time. He says the clergy became lax in their preaching and in their ministry. The temple was underfunded because of lack of interest and even Jewish men were divorcing their wives and marrying outside their faith and committing idolatry. Not to mention the fact that the poor, the disenfranchised, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner was being neglected. In short, what's happening in Malachi's world is the initial zeal of rebuilding is turning into disappointment and disillusionment. 
It's interesting because this phase in history reminds me a little bit of what John Wesley said about Methodism. His concern about Methodism, he writes in 1786, five years before he died at the age of 88, he said these words, I am not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist, either in Europe or in America, but I am afraid lest they should only exist as a dead sect having the form of religion without the power. That's the issue in Malachi. They have the form, they've lost the power. They know the music, they no longer can sing the words. They're going through the ecclesiastical motions, but their hearts are out in the parking lot. The whole piece, Malachi, is actually an argument. It's a fuss. It's a rip-it between the chosen people and God. In fact, if you read it closely, there are 22 questions in Malachi where the chosen ones are not only disputing their chosenness, they are now contesting God's love and justice. In fact, if you read between the lines, they are not just lamenting That is something that God allows, this honest expression of tears and anguish. But what they're doing is beyond lamenting. The Jews have a word for it. They're kvetching. It's an old Yiddish word. It means they've now become cynical. They've become so nostalgic, they've become skeptical, and they're kvetching. In other words, synonym, they're griping, they're mumbling. They're murmuring at God. I don't know if you know it or not, but that is a part of our religious, our spiritual formation. We come by it honestly. It started in the wilderness after the Jews left slavery. And some of us still practice it regularly. And chapter 2, verse 17 begins, listen to this, by saying something really peculiar about God. God has become weary. I've never really thought of that, have you? That God gets tired? I think of Psalm 121, he that keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. But sometimes, according to Malachi, God gets weary. Now, I want to ask you a personal question, and those of you who are parents, please don't raise your hand on this, but do you all ever get tired of parenting, grandparenting, children? Do you ever get tired of your parents? Don't answer that. Christmas is 16 days away. I did a session for the men a few weeks ago on a Thursday about parenting adult children. Sherry and I have some experience. We have two adult children, love them to death. One of the guys asked me after my presentation, when do they get off the payroll? And I thought for a moment and I said, I'll let you know. (laughs) Sometimes there's a weariness, even among our closest ties. I used to hear my wife say that from time to time when the children would act out. She would say something like this, you make me weak. She said it to me last week, but mostly to the children. (laughs) What she's saying is weary. What, What is it that 
makes you weary. Whenever I interview a, a new person, whenever we interview a new person from SPR for a staff per- position or a pastor's position, we, we always ask that question at the end. What is it that, that makes you weak? What is it that gets on your last nerve? What is it that makes you tired? In fact, before Casey Orr came on staff, I asked her that question. And you know what she said? It's none of your business. Uh, <laughs> the point is, sometimes people make God weak. Malachi says it. I didn't say it. You have wearied the Lord with your words, he says. Yet you say, how have we wearied the Lord? And he responds, you have wearied God by saying, all who do evil are good in the sight of the Lord, and he actually delights in them. They're kvetching. They're questioning God's justice, and some are even questioning God's existence. When you think about it, you can understand, really, because the Jews had seen the Babylonians when they were living as refugees, and they seemed to be living high on the hog. Things seemed to be going quite nicely for the Babylonians and now for the Persians, and they're the Jews are living under occupation, and so they're thinking, the Jews are thinking, maybe, maybe it pays to be evil. Or maybe this faith thing, maybe it doesn't really pay off in the end. And the people are asking, where is God? And what's interesting to me is it turns out that God is wondering the same thing about his people. <laughs> where are you? They are defying God with their distrust and at the same time blaming God for the consequences. Sound familiar? That's my story. And God is weary. (laughs) It's interesting to me that though God gets weary, he never gives up on his children. He never gives up. Malachi sounds the alarm in chapter 3, verse 1. See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you to prepare the way before me. The church would believe this is John. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The message of the covenant in whom you delight. Indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he, listen to this, for he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants, catch this, of Levi, and refine them until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. I don't know about you, but that sounds more like the second coming hmm, than the first coming. In other words, what Malachi is saying is when God comes back, he's not going to start the accountability thing with the enemy, <laughs> with the Babylonians or even the Persians. He's going to start with the chosen people and specifically with the Levites. Who's that? That would be the clergy. He's going to start with the priests, the spiritual leaders, the lay leaders, the synagogue, the church, the temple. 
And so it's a way of saying for Malachi, be careful what you wish for. When I think of my life and the work I still need to do spiritually in my own life, I'm not so sure I want Jesus to be in such a hurry to come back so soon. I've got some work to do. There are other occasions where I think now would be a good time for him to come. A couple of weeks ago, I was in a conference finance and administration meeting, a denominational meeting that went on for eight hours with the bishop. About halfway through, I texted my friend, Phil Jamison, who's a part of this church, who was seated right across the table, four words, come quickly, Lord Jesus. <laughs> now would be a good time. But it didn't come. I don't know if you're aware of it, but we're not just waiting for God to come. He has come, and He is come. In fact, He's right beside you. I don't understand it sometimes that we talk about God as though He's not here. He's closer than a brother. And He's so intimately involved with your life that he knows the hair count on your head. Well, most of you. God is coming. But his presence is not always peace and joy. Sometimes it's cleansing and purifying. And that doesn't always feel good at the moment. Malachi uses two images I want to mention briefly to convey the effect of God's arrival. He says it's like fire and soap. Fire, first of all, not just any kind of fire. It's not a consuming fire. It's not like a forest fire. It doesn't burn everything. It's a refiner's fire, he says. It's a purifying force. So that when the silversmith heats up the metal, what happens to the impurities? They float up to the top and he skims off the dross. Has that ever happened to you in worship? Right in the middle of Casey's prayer, God brings up some dross in your life, and you confess it. The impurities float to the top in God's presence, and he forgives them. The text specifically mentions a purifier of silver because in ancient days, in Malachi's day, the artisan would put a small amount of ore in a vat or a crucible and then put it in the furnace to heat up and melt the ore. When it became liquid, he would pull it out and look at it, and if he could see his reflection in it, he knew it was ready. But if his image was distorted, he would scrape off more of the dross, reheat it, until at last he could see his reflection in the molten silver. And when he saw his image, he knew it was pure and ready for casting. And that's how it is with God. God doesn't cause all the heat in our life, to be sure. But he certainly can use it, can't he? Not to destroy your faith, but to refine you so that his image becomes visible in you. Second word, a fuller soap. 
In Malachi's day, workers, this is what they would do, workers in the field would take the raw wool right off the sheep's back, and they would saturate it with this coarse soap called fuller soap. It was a harsh, lye-based kind of detergent, which when pounded into the wool would cause the fibers to cling together. And then they would beat the wool flat into what we would call felt, and they could use that material for rugs and mats. But if they wanted to make the felt more valuable, what they did was they would pull the fibers out, spin them into a kind of thread, and weave fabric. And when the fabric was woven together, again, they would saturate it with fuller soap, scrub, wash, rinse, and stretch it tight in the sun to bleach it. And when it dried, they would repeat the process again and again, and the fiber would break down and get softer, and the impurities would be removed, and it would become bright and beautiful and ultimately valuable. The fire makes us pure. The soap makes us clean. And this is what happens when God comes. When God draws near, there is a strength and beauty within you that you didn't even know existed. And I don't have to tell you the process isn't easy. In fact, it can be downright painful. But this is essentially what God does when he comes into our lives and permeates our hearts. One other word. Did anybody see President George Herbert Walker Bush's funeral this week? Did you see that? It was one of those occasions where I was thankful that I was actually ill that day for a couple of days and had the chance to see that funeral. I don't know what you thought, but I thought it was a high and holy moment in the life of our nation. There was something about it that was meaningful to me to see all of our surviving presidents sitting on the same row. Though they disagreed, I saw human beings sitting in a pew at church mourning the loss of a man, and it did something for me. Ninety-four years old, a man who had been through the fire himself in a world war, in the Oval Office, who somehow possessed this deep humility. The line of the day for me came from a Wyoming retired Senator, Alan Simpson, who said, you remember this, those who travel the road of humility in Washington are not bothered by heavy traffic. (laughs) But you could see it, humility. Goodness came through the fire. I I read the other day that he had written a letter, 41, had written a letter to Sam Palmisano, former CEO of IBM. Sam had asked him to share some insight in his convalescence, some advice that he had discerned that he could pass on to his young employees. And the president wrote him back, and he said, I cannot single out one great challenge in my life. I've had so many. But my advice to young folks just getting started would be these words. Don't get down when your life takes a bad turn. Out of adversity comes challenge and blessing. Don't blame everybody else for your setbacks. 
When things go well, always give credit to others. Don't talk all the time. Listen to your friends. Learn from them. Don't brag on yourself. Let others point out your strong points. Give somebody else a hand. When a friend is hurting, show that friend that you care. Nobody likes an overbearing big shot. When you succeed, be kind. Thank those who help you. And never be afraid to shed a tear when your heart is heavy or when a friend is hurting. And last but not least, he said, always say your prayers. That's a president. Sounds more like a malachi to me. <laughs> a messenger who knows what it means to be refined like silver. Well, we're just 16 days away now. Let me give you a little word of counsel. If you're making out a wish list, make sure that along with the things you want, you include the things you need, like fire and soap, so that you will be ready when he comes and so that his image will be clearly visible in you as we make ready for his coming. In Jesus' name, amen.